The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 together, okay? We're continuing tonight in our series. It's called Marriage Exposed, a raw look into covenant and conflict. And uh, last week we looked at the first six verses of the same place we're headed, Matthew 19. Uh, And we're going to reread those tonight so that we have proper context for the next six verses. But we'll zero in and focus on 6 through 12 this week. Verses 1 through 6, last week, they led us into a long, careful look at the reality that Christian marriage is a covenant, and we took lots of time to unpack what that means. And I personally am really thankful that this account in Matthew 19 led us to discuss the nature of marriage first before we go get into the nitty-gritty details of the answer Jesus gives here about divorce. Because, the reason I'm really thankful for that, is because understanding the weight and gravity and beauty of covenant is the only way that we can even start to think properly about divorce, okay? Now, I told you last Sunday that the divorce rate in the U.S. is down about 18% over the last 10 years, but not all of the reasons for that are great. There's also, I'm off the top of my head here, I think 28% increase in cohabitation in the same time frame. So not all the reasons for the drop in the divorce rate are necessarily great. But we have a plan to help drop that rate even further. And in our case, it'll be for a good reason. And so our plan is we're going to start charging folks $100 to go through the premarital process here at Love City. And you might be wondering, how's that going to help? Well, the $100 is going to cover the piece of Ikea furniture that we're going to make the two of you assemble as a team. (laughs) Because if you can get through that and still want to be married, you can get through just about anything. And I'm not talking about an end table. I'm talking about a dresser, something with a lot of little parts, okay? And so that's our plan. That's what we're going to do. We think it's going to help to the glory of God. Um, If you really don't like Swedish furniture, we can do a camping tent or some other alternative. But uh, either way, we're going to find some stuff out in the process. Amen? All right. Uh, Let's read together. I hope you went to Matthew 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, please let us know. We always have lots to give away for free, and we really enjoy doing that. Uh, But I'm going to read Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, and here we go. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Praise God for his word. Amen. Uh, The subtitle for this sermon series is A Raw Look into Covenant and Conflict. And I want to warn you that this is about to get pretty raw. Okay? I'm going to pray again in just a moment. Right now, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us focus together as we work through the scriptural principles that we're going to work through tonight. Because as we move through this, you will be tempted to hear something and begin mentally applying it to your situation or the situation of people you know. And that could cause you to miss a piece of what is, in many ways, a very complicated puzzle that we're going to be building today. If something you hear brings up a specific question, I would encourage you to write it down. And as I did last week, I will hang out up here at the end to answer questions after service, or you can reach out this week if that's not an appropriate setting, and we can talk through specifics. I am fully anticipating we're going to have some questions, okay? Because we're about to get in tall cotton. This is pretty widely agreed upon to be some of the most complicated material to try to cover as a pastor, as a Christian, uh, in, in terms of what the Bible has to say about it. So, uh, and in saying that, there, there are a lot of things to cover tonight. So I'm going to ask you to not start arguing with me in your mind, at least until the end, okay? Because if you start that fight and you don't wait till the end, you, you may start a, a squabble between you and me that doesn't really need to happen, okay? If, if you just wait till the end. But if at the end you are still troubled by something, I want to say again, let's talk, okay? Because this is some tough stuff and it's personal, And there's going to be application that's going to be tough to swallow, okay? I promise. Um, And it's tempting to skip this in a sermon preaching context, but we're not that kind of place, right? We're going to dive headlong into it, and the Holy Spirit's going to help us, okay? So I'm going to pray over us right now, if you'd bow your head with me. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and first we just want to say we love you, and we are thankful for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for gathering us together underneath the teaching of your word. Thank you for the working of your Holy Spirit right now in our hearts and in our minds. And God, we're just asking, especially right now, for your anointing to help us to focus, to listen well. God, I ask you to help me speak well. I ask you to fill in all the gaps of the things I can't possibly cover in this time frame we have tonight. And Lord, I just ask that uh, just the spirit of your grace and compassion would sit upon all of us as we study tonight. Lord, we want all of this ultimately to be for your glory. We know it will be because the might of your hand is at work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, As I said last week, there there may be some of you who are aware of much of what we're going to cover tonight, but we can't make assumptions about what people understand, okay? And even if you do have a fairly good handle on this, we need to be able to think and speak biblically with love-motivated sensitivity about these things, but also not just kind of in, in... vague, ethereal ways, but with real scripturally sound-backed um, truth. That's, that's what we need. 
Um, the focus today, uh, as you may be guessing from all that I've said and from the scriptures we read, is on divorce. But a true scriptural understanding of this subject, it, it has a lot of practical application on how we think and problem solve in our marriages. And that's the other thing I'm hoping on the backside of this coin you'll be able to see, is as we understand what Jesus teaches and what his word teaches about divorce, hopefully what it will do is create some of the beneficial and, and benevolent boundaries that God intends for it to in our thinking and in our practice. You understand what I mean when I say that? Uh, sometimes when things are hard, our thoughts can, can run to something like divorce as an option. And there's a whole lot of people I've known and tried to counsel and, and love through difficult situations that have wasted a whole lot of brain space and energy imagining what it would be like to take that leap and go that way instead of focusing that brain space, that energy, that prayer, and all of that into actually fixing whatever the problem is. Okay? So we want to avoid that. Because each one of us struggles with the remnants of our sinful nature, there are are inevitably conflicts in marriages. And in following weeks, we will cover some more specifics about navigating those conflicts through a gospel lens. The hope is that armed with a biblical understanding of love and grace and forgiveness, because we have the example of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, divorce will not be a part of the conversation among followers of Jesus who are married. However, Though God explicitly states in Malachi 2 that he hates divorce, there are situations given in the scripture where it is permitted. And remember, as we move through this, that permitted is a key word here, not command. Those are different. Because if Christian marriage is a reflection of the redeeming and reconciling nature of Christ and his gospel, like Ephesians 5 says it is, then the best case scenario is always restoration of a marriage in which sin has caused separation. So what we just read Jesus saying here was no less shocking to the hearers then than it is to many in our culture now. And how do we know that? Well, let's look at verse 10 again, which is the disciples' response. So the Pharisees come, they're trying to trip Jesus up. If he answers one way, a certain group will be mad at him. If he answers another way, uh, another group will be mad at him. As, as Jesus often does with the scriptures, he cuts right down the middle, makes everybody look silly, which is great. But this, so he says everything he says, and then this is what the disciples respond. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Now, it's interesting what Jesus then goes on to say, because then he starts talking about, well, some people are eunuchs from birth, some people are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. You know, he gives these distinctions. You would almost expect Jesus to say, well, hold on, that's a real selfish attitude. Like, you know, because we, we kind of, we, most of us have been exposed to Jesus' teaching on marriage. We know it's tied to, you know, he, he, when he's asked about it, he goes straight to Genesis and this two becoming one flesh. And we have the benefit of Ephesians 5 showing us, we have the benefit of the gospel period, but then we have the benefit of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit tying Ephesians 5, showing us that the gospel and Christian marriage, how they're tied together and their reflections of one another. So we have all that. These guys didn't have that. And they're shocked to hear Jesus answer here. Because in that day, it was as simple as if you're tired of your wife, specifically, unfortunately, there was a, a lot more gender inequality at that time. Basically, if, you know, if your wife uh, 
burn the beans, man. You just write her a certificate of divorce and, and send her off. I mean, it could be that simple, that trivial. So part of what Jesus is doing in his answer is saying, that's wicked and wrong, and y'all need to stop. Okay, so that's part of what he's got to say here. But he takes it even farther, doesn't he? And, he? and he says, man, what God has brought together, let not man separate. This is a real serious deal. He starts to use some of that covenant language. We unpacked all that last week, why we know that that's what he's referring to. And so uh, I think it's, it's just very interesting that Jesus' answer to the disciples wasn't, well, you selfish punks, you know? He's like, yeah. For some people, so what did the disciples say? If that's true, if marriage is that serious, and, and, the, and the only way somebody can be divorced is in, in the instance of immorality, what, it's, then it's better not to get married. That's, that's intense, man. And Jesus is like, yeah, for some people, you're on it. That's the right answer. And that's just one, one thing I want to say to you, friends, is, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not uh, a historian of first class by any means, but it, it seems to me that around the time of the Protestant Reformation is as you know, things were, some, some, some wrong doctrines and, and certain things were being corrected. I think in some ways we overcorrected. And Paul warned about forbidding marriage in certain situations. And so some of what, you know, and, and we're, as, you know, who we are today, we're, we're children of the Protestant Reformation, right? And so the, sometimes I think the overcorrection from the Catholic doctrine of restricting clergy from marrying and all of that is that we've gone all, you know, so in... On that side of things, it would be very weird for somebody that is considered a leader in the church to be married. We've gone all the way to the other end, where now if a leader in the church was single, it's like, ooh, that's weird. Or, or sometimes even uh, uh, just a Christian is not married. It's like, ooh, what's wrong with them? And, and that's, just not, that's just not at all what we see in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, somebody willing for the sake of the kingdom to forego the privilege of marriage, it seems they should be honored and esteemed. They should be held up. And so, you know, we don't have time for me to get into a bunch of all that. I just wanted to put that out there for you to think about. Um, According to Jesus, yes, for some people it is better not to marry. And so hopefully that speaks to those of you who are married and, and maybe think that way about folks that aren't, but hopefully it also speaks to some of you that maybe are not married. Um, you're not second-class citizens in the kingdom at all. You might be more like the special forces of the kingdom. Okay? So what is Jesus saying about divorce? All right? A lot of what this kind of rotates around is, is this word immorality. Okay? Because Jesus basically lays it down, go, ties back to Genesis, says, let not you know, man separate what God has brought together. But then he says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so the word immorality here is porneia. And that can have a broad meaning. But here it is thought by many commentators to be a reference to the code of sexual conduct found in Leviticus 18. And there we see various restrictions on things like incest and bestiality, But all of these restrictions, they have to do with physical acts of sexual sin. Aside from that, the harmonious conclusion of all the scriptures is is that the only sex that is not sinful is sex between a husband and a wife. So the point here is, scholars tend to argue over what all Jesus intended. If you have a different 
translation in the NASB in your lap, it may say adultery here in place of immorality. Immorality is a, a better technical translation, which NASB, you know, NASB tends to focus on. Uh, but with this word, the simplest way to understand it is, is to mean adultery or sex outside of the marriage covenant. Okay, so you could read this and it's perfectly okay to read it except for adultery. And this is important because if Jesus intended for immorality here to extend to, I don't know, for example, impure thoughts and not the physical act of having sex with another person you're not married to, then he would have just answered to the question, you know, what what was the Pharisee's question? Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason at all? I mean, if... If he was stretching all the way to impure thoughts, he may as well have just said yes, right? Because as soon as someone decides they're not happy, they could just appeal to the reality that every one of us has struggled with impure thoughts at some point, right? So it's, it's pretty clear here from the context and the way Jesus uses it. He's talking about somebody going outside of the marriage covenant, having sex with somebody else, okay? Now, another consideration. I told you this was complicated. The introduction and prevalence of pornography has definitely muddied the water on this issue, okay? Because it takes sinful lust and thoughts about someone you aren't married to, and it adds to it the issue of self-sex while fixating on those fantasies. Now, you need to know this. Thoughtful Christians differ on their understanding of habitual, unrepentant pornography use and whether or not it fits the technical definition of adultery, we're not going to get into that argument tonight because that would be all the time we have plus some, and it's not really the point because regardless, it is sinful and destructive, and any Christian caught in that sinister web should fight with every weapon and tool that God has given to slay that sin and be free from it immediately. This includes, by the way, walking in the light, seeking accountability and help from the family of God, Because to keep fighting it alone and failing is like going to a gunfight and putting up your fists. That typically ain't going to end very well. Okay? So, Jesus is saying here that adultery, and this is where it gets real narrow. Jesus is saying here that adultery is the only legitimate cause for seeking a divorce. But as I said earlier, this is not a command, it's a concession. The prophets, if you remember, often use language of our sin against God, making us like whores and adulterers against him. And Jesus still came and died to offer us grace and forgiveness. Clearly, Jesus acknowledges here that sometimes redemption of a marriage where there has been infidelity is not possible. But every effort towards restoration should be made. This, of course, hinges, importantly, on true repentance and contrition on the part of the offender. Without that, there is no hope of real reconciliation. That's a key component. Now, we do see in the scriptures one other situation where, and I realize for some of you, it's like Jesus just said one, okay? And and I get that, and I'm going to address that, okay? Just give me a minute. We see one other situation where divorce for the Christian is permissible, and that comes from 1 Corinthians 7. You can turn there if you like, or you can just listen as I read it out loud. 
But before we go there, I want to address a natural question that flows from what we just covered. You're probably thinking it. Is the person who had the adultery committed against them free to remarry if the marriage does indeed end in divorce? Again, it's unfortunate, but there are varying views here. That can really add to the confusion. There are those who say no. Remarriage is never permissible after a divorce. And much of the time, that position is rooted and comes out of the strong one-flesh language that Jesus uses and all that we understand about covenant and the fact that, like we talked about last week, God does this supernatural thing of gluing people together. You know, when Malachi, uh, when God talks about hating divorce in Malachi, there's, there's this idea of, like, the, the divorce is like, it, it, it's like it leaves blood on your clothes almost. It, it, it's violent. It's almost like, akin to murder in a way. It's that, it's that big of a deal. And so it's, but, and, and there, those that hold that position are not all fringe, right? John Piper comes to mind. I know that's his personal opinion. He's written a position paper on it, but he also knows that pastorally that doesn't jive with a lot of church history. And so he said that's his personal position, but you know, the church that he was a pastor of for a long time, that was not the position of the elders and, and all of the folks there. And so um, and just one caveat, side note, that, I don't know, this is important. I just saw it the other day, and I just want to address it. I'll use John Piper as an example. I think it was Relevant or Christianity Today. I can't remember which one. And Relevant and Christianity Today sometimes have perfectly fine articles, things that are helpful for Christians to read. But one of those two publications the other day posted something about, it was like, John Piper does a Ask uh, Pastor John thing. He has for years. So people write in questions, and, and he answers. And one of their, those podcasts or blogs or which one, I don't know, vlog, blog, I don't know. I can't keep track of what even all that is. But whatever it was, the, he, what he was addressing was people asking about sexualized dreams and what they should do with that. And is that sinful? Where does sin start and stop there? And what should I do? And, and the whole tone of this article that was writing about the fact that John Piper and Desiring God had written that article. It was almost like making fun of it. It's like, do you really care what John Piper thinks about sexualized dreams? And then you go into the comments, all these people, you know, doing the puke emoji and all this type of stuff. And here's, I just want to say something to all of you, and and we need to get this right. I, I don't agree with John Piper on a lot of stuff. But if John Piper was in a room talking, I would sit down and I would shut my mouth and I would listen. Because that man has been studying the Bible longer than I've been alive he has faithfully led a ministry, faithfully been married, and deserves respect and honor. So anybody out here kicking rocks or throwing rocks at these older theologians, look, man, I'm glad John Piper has the stones to answer a question like that. Because a bunch of people won't even touch it, because it is too weird. And that, well, what are people, look, man, and, and it's tough to even go to the scriptures and answer somebody's question about sexualized dreams, because you ain't going to find that in Ezekiel. But the brother did his best with what he had to try to bring an answer to bear that would help people, you know, have a biblical understanding of what we could know about it, how we could faithfully deal with that issue. So I'm just saying, don't let me catch anybody that's a part of this church disrespecting any of these older brothers that have been faithful for decades, preaching the gospel, whether we agree with them on everything or not. Amen? Amen. Okay. Got that out of my system. (laughs) All right. Uh, So there are those that say divorce is never permissible. 
or I'm sorry, that remarriage is never permissible after divorce. There also are, are parallel accounts in Mark and Luke where this exception for adultery is not included. Okay, so like the same discussion is recorded by different gospel authors, and they don't include this except in this case of immorality or adultery thing that, Jesus, that Matthew wrote down that Jesus said. Okay, so that's true. So sometimes people will make something of that. You know, ultimately, because what we believe about the scriptures, you know, that's part of why God had different men write God. Why do we have four gospels? Well, because God in his great provident wisdom knew that Matthew would key in on stuff that Luke would miss, and Luke would key in on stuff that Matthew would miss, and John was going to be out in left field doing different stuff than all of them. But that means we get a more well-rounded view of the life and ministry and words of Jesus. Okay? So we don't pit them against each other. That's not how that works. So though all that is true... A very safe and prevalent view throughout church history has been that those accounts in this situation must include the exception recorded in the book of Matthew. So just because Luke and and Mark didn't write it down doesn't mean Jesus didn't say it there. They just didn't write it down. Matthew did write it down, okay? Both in Matthew 5 and here in Matthew 19. If Jesus is saying that divorce is a terrible undoing of the miraculous covenant union between two people, and that is why it is not permissible for just any reason, but then gives this exception in the case of adultery, then it follows that the person sinned against is not bound to the offending spouse. And if they're not bound to the offending spouse, Jesus said, except in this case. So Jesus is the one that just said, Let not man separate what God brought together. He's the one that hearkened back to Genesis and made this strong, stood in strong opposition to the sloppy doctrine of the day, which was, well, just write a certificate of divorce and you're good. And then he said, except in the case of immorality, adultery. Okay? So from that, the... Prevalent view throughout church history, history is that the person sinned against is free to remarry. Okay. However, the disciples' reaction to Jesus' words here, remember what they said? If that's true, it'd be better not to get married at all. And the words of Jesus about eunuchs should be carefully considered, as well as the instruction from Paul that we're about to see in 1 Corinthians 7. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, technically somebody sinned against in that way. If a divorce is the result, they can remarry. And we're not going to stand in the way of that, especially as we read 1 Corinthians 7. You'll see why. But it it definitely shouldn't be giddy, shouldn't be rushed. And there should be a lot of thought and prayer and careful consideration put into that. Okay? All right. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 15. And remember, Jesus said, except in the case of Porneia, immorality, adultery. So that's one case where we have divorce being permissible from the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 15. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, remember, Paul is responding to questions that came to him from the Corinthian church. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband is to 
must, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. He's talking about not being married. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Again, talking about not being married. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. And when he says here, but the, he says, but the Lord, and he says, not the Lord. He's talking about Jesus specifically, okay? He's talking about what he heard Jesus say or what he knows Jesus taught. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For, if, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay, Just so you're not uh, distracted by it, the whole sanctified by one another. Remember, that's not saying justified, it's saying sanctified. And Paul's speaking to this reality that if somebody that doesn't believe in Jesus is married to someone that does believe in Jesus, that there should be this, this sanctifying effect. There should be at least a divine agitation upon the life of the unbeliever because they live in the same house and are married to the believer. You understand what I'm saying? So don't get twisted up thinking that somehow what we have here is Paul saying somebody can be an unbeliever, be married to a believer, and that means they're saved. That's not what he's talking about. He says sanctified, not justified, okay? All right, now, the pivot here, aren't we having fun? We're having fun. The pivot in verse 12 here shows two different audiences. That's important. He's talking about marriages of two believers and then marriages where one person is not a believer. Okay, and the instructions change. We've got to pay attention to the audience. That, that helps us understand. The Lord here is Jesus, as I told you before. So in verses 10 and 11, he is appealing to what Jesus said, which includes the exception already covered. Let's look at that again. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Basically, that's, he's offensively saying, this is what Jesus said, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. He's right there. He's saying, this is the Lord's teaching on the matter. Okay. And what we said before is even though uh, Luke and Mark didn't include the exception that Matthew did, the exception that Matthew put in for, in, except in the case of adultery, has to, it covers those and it also covers this. Okay. So you have to interpret Paul here quoting Jesus' teaching on marriage. Paul just also elected not to include the adultery clause here, but it's there. Okay, so you can just add that in at the end. It's still severe, right? The wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. So if, if a divorce happens without biblical grounds, that's where you're at. 
okay? And that's tough. I told you we're going to have a few spoonfuls of medicine tonight that are going to be hard to swallow. And that brings up some, some questions, and it's like, wow, that seems harsh, but let's keep thinking through this. So then he addresses, then Paul, verses 12 through 15, he addresses something that Jesus did not specifically address. But keep in mind, we believe Paul's writing underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what he says here holds no less weight, okay, than the commands of Jesus. I told you I would address this, so here we are. Why does it seem that Paul is adding something here to what Jesus said, right? Because Jesus said, let not man separate what God has joined together except in the case of adultery, right? But then Paul comes along and he adds this other instance, this other exception, right? Where an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage and he says, let them go. What are you going to do? Chain them, Right? He didn't actually say that. I want to make sure you know I'm not quoting him. That's, I, you know, there's a little bit of extra there. Why does it seem that way? It seems that way because Jesus was answering the question, is it, and I, I want you to know, <laughs> there's no writing about this. A, a significant portion of my thought and prayer life this week was dedicated to this question I'm answering for you right now. Why is, this, why is Paul saying something different than Jesus? I was freaked out about it. Like, you know, <laughs> put a gun to my head and make me choose. I'm going with Jesus, right? Like, I trust them both, and I believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures, but it's like, ooh, if, it, I, if I can't figure out a way, but by God's grace, by the help of His Holy Spirit, and well, I tell you, I burned Google up, man. If you saw my gurgle, my gurgle don't look at my gurgle. If you, saw my, if you saw my Google search, I mean, I tried to frame this question 10,000 different ways this week to find, did some, has somebody somewhere, like, addressed this? <laughs> because it's different what they're saying, right? Because Jesus didn't say what Paul's saying. So, and then the Lord helped me. Jesus was answering this question. Is it permissible to seek a divorce for any reason? Jesus' answer to that was, it's permissible for you to seek a divorce if you have adultery committed against you as a believer. Okay? Paul is answering the question, what happens if an unbelieving spouse leaves and divorces the believer? Two total, it's two different things. Okay? G, the Pharisees didn't come and ask Jesus 15 questions, asked him one question. Right? And Jesus answered their question. Paul here is answering a different question and I made a point to show you at the beginning, why is he answering this question? He answered this question because this is the questions people are asking. This is, they wrote him and said, hey, Paul, what do we do about this? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's answering the question, which is why we didn't, we didn't see Jesus answer that in Matthew. He wasn't asked that. Okay? Not that he didn't know that abandonment was going to be an issue potentially in the future. I assume he knew that Paul would address it. <laughs> right? Okay. In this case, okay, you have an unbelieving spouse that abandons a believing spouse. Because of verse 15, it, it, it seems very clear that the abandoned spouse is, is no longer bound and thus free to remarry. Let me read that to you again, just so you know I'm not making them up. 
Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay? Again, I told you, there's a lot of varying voices and input on this. Uh, but this, I feel safe saying this is the, these two conditions for the permissibility of divorce being understood as right is, is the most widely accepted view within the Christian umbrella over church history, okay? And that, you know, church history matters, right? Like, we stand on the shoulders of theologians that have gone before us and the apostles themselves. So, I feel safe there. I know some, there, there may be some here that don't, okay? And, and here's, how, here's what I want you to understand, Okay, if you read John Piper's position paper and you think, yep, I think that's right. Well, okay, but keep in mind, even John Piper knew he couldn't take that paper and impose it upon the entire church because he knows how much weight the rest of church history holds and the position and how pastors have been trying to pastor people through these incredibly complex, difficult situations for 2,000 years. Okay, so what, if, if your position is, well, I don't know about if that's what 1 Corinthians 7 means, or I don't know if you should remarry, if you have adultery committed against you, or whatever, I'm just letting you know this is an orthodox, way inside the fence, safe position. It's the position we're taking here. And so, as long as you're not running around trying to condemn people over your personal conviction about it, it's fine. But just make sure you're not doing that. Okay? And nobody. I got, I got some even wilder stuff to say here. <laughs> We're not done. Nobody, I want you to hear me clearly. No matter what you hear tonight, you should not leave here condemned. I don't care what your parents' story is. I don't care what your story is. No matter what, if you leave here condemned, either you misheard something, misunderstood something, or I didn't say it well. And any of those are possibilities. Okay? If you are tempted to leave here condemned, please... If you're afraid to talk to me, you know, because I cut my hair short and I'm kind of aggressive in my vocal tone, fine. Talk to somebody. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to a friend. Have them talk to me. But I promise you, there's no re the only reason you should leave here concerned tonight is if you have not put faith in Jesus. That's the only reason you should leave here concerned. Any of the rest of what we're going to talk about, there's hope and there's redemption and there's reconciliation possible. Okay? All right. And if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't leave your concern. Just trust him today. That's, that's the right answer because he loves you. And he died in your place for your sins. And he's proven that he's worthy of your affection and your allegiance. And all he's going to do is help you and love you. And be good to you like he's been to me. Okay. <clears throat> so the point there is, verse 15, it's clear that a person abandoned by an unbelieving spouse is no longer bound and thus they are free to remarry. The same, however, keep in mind everything else Paul said above, right? Widows and everybody else, there's, there's great reasons for you to seriously consider staying unmarried in the service of Christ if you find yourself in that position, okay? And so it shouldn't be, whoo, I'm glad it all worked out. I can get rid of that one. Back on the market, you know what I mean? That <laughs> if... <clears throat> Divorce is a heart-rending, violent process of the undoing of a supernatural gluing that God does of two people into one, okay? And so it should, nothing about it's light. 
It's terrible. God hates it. But he doesn't hate those that unfortunately and, and sometimes without not even wanting to participate in it, get stuck in that position. All right. This does get complicated. If somebody leaves, an unbelieving spouse leaves, but does not file for divorce. Okay, that could happen. They just leave. They dip out. In these cases, the person that was left should seek guidance and care from the elders in their church. They should move slowly prayerfully and carefully, depending on whether the spouse that left can be found or contacted, or whether they profess to be a believer or not, uh, the, the right answer in that situation may be to wait in hopes of reconciliation. I know that's another hard pill to swallow, but that is the truth. So we have just seen the two situations, two, where divorce is permissible biblically. In which case, those either sinned against or abandoned can remarry. There is the reality that if somebody divorces for unbiblical reasons and chooses to stay, sing, to stay unmarried, there, the divorce is still a sin, but the consideration of remarriage is, is not on the table. If they were truly, actually repentant for the sin of an unbiblical divorce and chose then to stay unmarried, God's grace and forgiveness is available for them. Okay? Now, I anticipate that a question for many of you at this stage is, what about cases of abuse? And that is a legitimate and important question that we need to address. The first thing we need to say is that all abuse, physical, mental, sexual, verbal, or any other kind is sinful, whether perpetrated by a husband or a wife. Many times it is also illegal. And in these cases, the governing authorities should be allowed to play their role in the situation as deemed necessary by those suffering the abuse or those that are counseling them. Nothing in the teachings of Scripture, especially when we take into account the commands given to husbands and wives for how they are to treat each other, should lead us to the conclusion that God wants an abused spouse to stay in a dangerous or perpetually destructive situation. In these situations, it may be required to take action along similar lines as church discipline. If you're not familiar with what that is, if somebody, and, and if you haven't been around here very long uh, or in another church that talks about hard stuff, uh, you may not have heard of church discipline, and you may have just heard those words put together, and you might be thinking, hold up, what? Because <laughs> uh, like, discipline, hold on, I'm an adult. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, the Bible is very clear, First uh, Corinthians 5 and elsewhere, that there are conditions where if somebody is in blatant unrepentant sin and the leadership of the church has come to them and gone through a process of trying to call them to repentance, to call them to stop, whatever that is, and their basic answer is, mm, no, nah, I'm going to do what I want. Uh, after a process, and, and the Bible doesn't say take a month, take three weeks, and so it takes the discernment of the Holy Spirit in, in 
church leadership to be able to figure out what that process looks like, what the duration is. But after doing everything that church leadership can to try to call that person to repentance and out of that destructive behavior, there's a point where what has to happen is that person can't be allowed to continue to pretend that they're following Jesus because that will lead to their destruction. So if church leadership just says, okay, well, you're going to keep just doing whatever you want, sleeping with whatever you want, doing whatever, and they just turn a blind eye to that and don't deal with it, uh, that's like a rot and a fester that will sweep throughout the congregation, first of all. Uh, And secondly, it is personally damnable in destruction. It it rots destruction in the life of the person that is being left to that. And so the point of church discipline is not uh, to harm the person, but to try to shake them out of the stupor of believing that whatever they're doing, which is against what Jesus has taught is good for them, uh, it's to try to shake them out of that. It's always to try to move them towards healing and reconciliation in Christ. The hope is if somebody actually has the Spirit of God in them and actually has been grafted into Christ's body of the church to tell them you no longer can participate in the life of the body of the church, the hope is that that grabs them and gets their attention so that they will realize, though, I mean, this is real serious. Now, I understand, again, there's a bunch of places in 2020 America where you'll never hear the word church and discipline put next to each other, much less have that process work itself out in the life of a congregation. And uh, I realize it sounds maybe archaic and kind of intense and like, ooh, I don't know about all that. I, I, would, just, I would just submit to you if that's where you're at. Grab your Bible, check out 1 Corinthians 5. Talk to, Again, talk to somebody. Uh, because I have had to walk through that process with people. And, uh, and by God's grace, it, it has done what it's designed to do many times. It has turned them from self-destruction. And it, it startled them out of their stupor, okay? But what I'm saying is in situations of abuse, we we may have to take a similar line, okay? So the abused spouse along with children may have to separate from the abuser or the abuser be legally removed from the situation. In such cases, church leadership should be involved, calling the abuser to repentance and including whatever rehabilitation may be needed. If the abuser is truly repentant and willing to do whatever is necessary for reconciliation, that avenue should be explored with the watchful eye of church leaders and perhaps the authorities as well. If the abuser is unrepentant and stubbornly maintains that position, it may become evident that that person is not a follower of Jesus or is refusing to live like one and would be placed under church discipline. After long, prayerful, and careful process, if it is determined that the abuser is not actually a believer, then the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 7 then come into play that we just read. Clearly, this is all very complex, and it is why a lot of these situations, if not all of these situations, need to be navigated with the help of pastors, counselors, and others. Okay, It's very difficult to sketch out for you, well, this is exactly what will happen because there's a million variables. And so we can do the best we can to get a framework for how to think about this, but there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be nuanced and different in each situation, okay? Another difficult thought you might be considering, what about those who've already divorced without biblical grounds, the two biblical grounds we talked about, and have remarried? This depends to some degree on how and when that happened. Again, what I just said, there's, there's got to be some investigation and some consideration. 
just a few things, questions that would be asked. Were they truly following Jesus when they got married? Were they a part of a church or, other, or some other way been taught what the Bible actually says about these things? These are things that would have to be considered. And you might be thinking, well, I don't know, why would that matter? It's black and white, isn't it? It's, it's one or the other. Well, let me just read you this from Luke 2. Jesus is teaching a parable here. He says, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who's been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Here's the point. In verses 47 and 48 of Luke 12, Jesus makes a distinction between a wicked slave who knows exactly what he's doing that's wrong, says he's going to get a bunch of lashes when his master shows up. And he says if there's this other one that did some stuff but didn't know, there's going to be consequences, but it's not going to be as severe. And so my point is, Jesus here is saying there's a distinction. You're going to be held accountable to what you knew. There will be painful consequences every time humans deviate from God's good design for marriage. And this includes divorce. And so what it may be is in, in certain cases, if somebody's already gone that track, but they didn't know any better, nobody ever taught them, maybe they weren't a believer, maybe they had no, no understanding of what the Bible taught on the subject at all. It may be that just the pain of their choices is the flogging they receive. But ultimately, that is up to God. He is the judge, and he will handle that. And I trust whatever he does will be just. From Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 7, and various other things, including some verses in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, we don't have time to dig into all that. It's Deuteronomy 24, if you want to later. If someone divorces unbiblically and remarries because they didn't know any better, they should repent for the adultery they committed in coming together, but it would not be God's will for them to divorce and try to return to the previous spouse as a way of making it right. Does everyone understand what I'm saying? Okay. Now, I hope not, but some of you may be thinking, or someone that hears this later might be thinking, okay, so if I divorce unbiblically and, and then get remarried, the only thing I have to do in order to not be in perpetual adultery is repent, and then all will be good. Let me read you something from Hebrews 10 in response to that line of thinking. This is Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after having receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These verses that I just read, they're actually, in, in context, they're talking about forsaking the gathering of God's people in a continual way. I don't have time to get into that, but just put a pin in that. <laughs> Think about that later. But the principle applies here as well. 
What is he saying? Willful or premeditated sinful actions in order to get what you want and try to game the grace system are a surefire evidence you don't truly belong to Jesus. Dear friend, I would not try to play that game. It will not go well. Some may say after hearing that, well, then why did you preach this? Because now we're accountable to this knowledge. If not, we could have just divorced and remarried without biblical warrant and been forgiven. Now, if we do it willfully, we're going to face judgment. If anything like that has crossed your mind, let me just say to you, this way of thinking is also an indicator that you may not truly trust Jesus. Our willingness to avoid divorce at all costs and only go that route in the extreme cases the Bible allows for is a sign that we believe God knows better than we do. And he would never place these boundaries around marriage if it was not because of his great love for us. The lie that we'd be tempted to believe is that if I could figure out a way to get out of this marriage and and be okay with Jesus, I would be happier. And the truth is, pain and destruction come from covenant breaking, not happiness and joy. When we have struggles in our marriage, even deeply painful and difficult ones, it is another opportunity for us to live out the gospel and to experience the same power of God that brought Jesus up out of the grave That same power can be brought to bear on our relationships. It's a chance for us to see the power of God to resurrect things that we may have even thought were dead. If you're in the midst of trials and storms in your marriage, dear friend, hear me. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Remember his great and glorious gospel. Remember God's power, not only to create the world, but redeem it, even after all the damage we have done and still do. Remember his gospel and take heart, because he will use the struggles in your marriage just like he does every other trial in this life to form you and shape you and make you more and more like him. May we trust in our great and glorious God to empower us by his Holy Spirit to endure hardship in marriages, to love well, not judge harshly those whose marriages have been shattered by sin, and to keep our eyes on him through all these things for our good and his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for the truth of your word even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. God, it reminds us, it forces us back to fix our eyes upon the truth of your gospel, to remember why it is we trust you. And Lord, there's many hard things to understand in your word. There's many hard things that even though we understand it, it's hard to obey. But Lord, the reason we trust you is we come back to the reality that all the way back in Genesis 3, You told us someone was going to crush the serpent's head. You made covenants with 
Noah and Abraham and David, that you've kept your word every single time, that you tilted your hand and throughout all the Old Testament, the whole unfolding of that story, you were telling us that a Messiah was coming, a Savior was coming, and then he did. He came just where you said he would, just how you said he would. He came and he lived the life we couldn't and he died the death we should have and then he rose from the grave and he shattered all our expectations of what we thought salvation was going to look like. And you've given us every single reason we would ever need to trust you. And so God, when it's hard, please take us back to the truth of your gospel and show us and remind us again why you are worthy of our trust. I pray for every single person within the sound of my voice, either here now or that hears this later. God, anybody that's tempted to be condemned by the truth of your word that we've seen today, God, I just ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and remind them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank you that your grace is available for each of us. Thank you that your mercy is new every single morning. Lord, we need that. We need your mercy to be new every morning. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are anxious to forgive and to pour out blessing upon your people. You're slow to anger, long-suffering and patient. God, I pray for every single marriage that's a part of this church, that's connected to families that are a part of this church. And we just ask, Lord, that you would continue by the power of your Holy Spirit to use the good times and the difficult times, to use all of the times in this great glorious process of shaping us and forming us and making us more like you. God, I just ask you to encourage those that are downtrodden in these things. Encourage those that have, have been tempted. And right now, the conviction of your Holy Spirit is sitting upon them because they've contemplated divorce. They've contemplated running and bailing. God, I just ask that you would come and scoop them up and hold them close and show them and teach them and reveal to them again why if they cling to you, there is hope in every situation, no matter how dark it looks, no matter how dead they think it is. You're the God that raises the dead. And we exalt you. And we acknowledge your great sovereignty. And we acknowledge your wisdom far above our own. And so, Lord, I pray for every single person that even now at this moment finds themselves at odds with what your word says on these things. I just ask, Lord, that you would, in that beautiful way that you do, that you would patiently help them and, and work with them and draw them close and allow them, if need be, to set this on the shelf as they think and pray through it, but that they wouldn't run from you as a result. Thank you, God. I, I am thankful, Lord, that you say things that I would disagree with normally all the time. <laughs> I'm thankful that you do things not the way I would do it, that your ways are higher, your thoughts are better. You're the high and exalted one, holy and perfect. And so we love you, and we ask for your help in all these things, because we need it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot mylovecitychurch dot org